Production. Recorded live. All right, check one two one two one two one two. This is Jam Radio Network. Racism. The solution's actually simple. Answers with Ken Ham, whose ministry is building a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati, Ohio. Many people have tried to solve the problem of racism, but without success. But the remedy is actually rather easy. If people in every culture simply accepted the history of the world according to the Bible and built their thinking on God's word, then racism would virtually disappear. But because we live in a world where the majority of people reject the Bible, then the racism problem is not going to be solved. Christians everywhere should be shouting from the hilltops that the Bible teaches that all people are of one blood, one race of people. They are different races. Today's various people groups came about as a result of God giving different languages at the time of the Tower of Babel. This would have caused different peoples to go in different directions, thus developing into various groups. Genesis also tells us that all people have a sin problem. They need to trust Christ and conform their thinking to his teaching. If everyone accepted this, well, there'd be no racism. One great resource to help you understand this question of the origin of humans is our new pocket guide. In 96 pages, we'll answer your questions about the origin of humans and the so-called ape men. For your donation of any size, we'll mail it to you. Call toll-free 1-888-89-ANSWERS or go to our website of AnswersOffer.org. People have all kinds of excuses for not saving energy. I didn't plug it in. I'll turn it off later. It's not my music. It's just one phone charger. So um, we don't have those Energy Star appliances. So that old window leaks. How much energy and money could the new ones really save? Maybe it's time to stop making excuses and start doing some simple things to save the energy and resources we can. Because a little here and a little there can add up to a lot later. And you just never know what people will need in the future. My name is Sarah. And I'm going to get started today. We can all help save more energy for tomorrow. What's your excuse? For more energy-saving tips that also save money, visit loseyourexcuse.gov parents. This message is brought to you by the U.S. Department of Energy, the Ad Council, and the station. Hi, I'm Johnny Erickson Tata, and one of the stories in the Bible that I can most relate to is of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. And I like the King James Version. It says there that when Jesus saw that man lying there, he knew that it had been a long time. In other words, long before Jesus arrived at the pool, he knew, he understood the man's predicament. And that is so comforting. Jesus knows your health problem, even before your doctor gives a clear diagnosis. And it's because he loves you and knows what he's doing that you can trust that God has your best interests at heart. He knows your pain. He's aware of your fears the medications you take, the tests you need, and like that man at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus will not pass you by. Yes, you may well get healed, but if not, he'll have a different healing for you, a deeper, more lasting healing than you could possibly imagine. This is Ann Graham Lotz with Daily Light for Daily Living. Are you feeling depressed, lifeless? Is it hard to even get out of bed in the morning? If you're overwhelmed, by the greatness of your problems, read God's Word. It's where you will find help and peace. Psalm 119.50 promises 
your word has given me life at the most difficult times in my life, the loss of a baby, the forced removal from a church, the robbery of our home, my son's cancer. God's word sustained me. There have been times I've only been capable of reading a few verses, yet the supernatural, life-giving power of the word of God gave me strength to go on, even if only one day at a time. Listen to me. Let him drown out all other sounds and voices. Trust the life-giving power in God's word. But before you can trust it, you have to read it. Read the word. This is Van Graham Lott. This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins.
Good morning. This is the other morning gospel program. More inspirations here on Talk Show and Jam Radio. More scriptures coming from the book of Ezekiel, first six chapter. We're going we're going to read the first verses. Came to pass in the eleventh year, in in the first day of the month, that the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, because that Cyrus have said against Jerusalem, Aha! Spoken. That was that was the gates of the people. She's turned up, she's turned unto me. Finished. Now she is laid waste. Therefore, thus said the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, Cyrus, will cause many nations to come up against thee. Cause ways to come up 
Going through walls or top down, her also scrape her dust from her. Red like the top of a rock. Place for the spreading of nets. I have spoken. So become a spoil to the daughters which are in the field shall be by sword. They shall know that I am the Lord. Thus said the Lord God, Behold, Nicodemus, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, of kings from the north, horses, chariots, much people, play with the sword thy daughters in this field. Against thee, cast them out against thee, set the buckle against thee, set engines of war against thy against thy walls, and with axes he shall break down towers of the abundance of of his horses. Dust shall cover thee, or shall shake at the noise of the horsemen, of the wheels, and of thy gates. Captain. Verses 1 through 10.
Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1. And good morning. It's now time for our morning prayer. Let's go to the Throne of Grace, shall we? Precious Father, we thank you. One more day. Give us any sins, Lord, that we've done. Knowing it and knowing it and knowing it. Lord, right. Always say thank you. Thank you for all your many blessings. We even thank you for just the trials, just the tribulations we're going through. Thank you for the cross. If it wasn't for the cross, we would not be. Touch those right now, Lord. Right now, right now in the nursing homes and nursing homes in the world, Lord. Living assisted places. Living living places. Touch them now, right now, Lord. Name of Jesus. Wherever they're they're ailing. Wherever they're ailing, wherever they're strong, touch it right now. Name Jesus. We lift up those in mental institutions, Lord. We lift up those in the city, Lord. We lift up those, Lord. We don't know any part of this is. We lift up that person who's homeless and don't know where to go. Lord, we lift them up to this well, Lord. We lift up that, that child who ran away. We lift them up to you as well, Lord. We lift them up to, we lift them up. We lift up that parent who, who's worried. Okay. We lift up that marriage, Lord. Go on the street right now, Lord. That woman. Lift up those, Lord, that made the part lessons. Lift up those, Lord, who are in need. That you are a supplier of all needs. Lift up that that young man, that young woman who's graduated. know that their future is going to be bright, whatever they, they put their mind to. Touch our family, our friends, our church family, our neighbors, our pastor, our family. Touch the message, Lord, and thank you, Lord. There's a certain which trying to do you Talk to your family, those who are... Listen to us live by their conscience. 
you've known a person who served God for many years but then fell away during his or her final years. Sadly, we probably all know a few people who have, but we all want to finish well, don't we? The Apostle James wants us to finish well too, and that's the focus of Dr. Stephen Davies' message from the book of James today. So let's listen as Stephen brings us part two of his message, Observations from a Farm. Through those verses, just the first two or three, you, you might notice what my eyes picked up as well. Maybe you ought to underline the references three times to, to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. Last part of verse 8, the Lord is near. The last part of verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. His foot is on the threshold. His hand's on the latch. He's coming. Theologians refer to that as the parousia. That's the Greek word translated coming. Categorically, it's that eschatological time of his return, that parousia, that coming, the most common term used throughout the New Testament for the coming of Christ, the parousia. Now, we know that parousia will be in two phases. The first phase will be to take away the church from the promised tribulation, wrath of God, which will be poured out on the planet. The second phase of the parousia will be to return with the redeemed and set up that glorious 1,000-year literal kingdom where Christ will reign and rule from Jerusalem and, and we with him, that magnificent kingdom. As the New Testament unfolds, remember James is the first in these letters, this idea of the parousia will be explained, it will be expanded, will be defined. But what James does reveal in this, one of the earliest references to the parousia, the coming of Christ, is he gives us a couple of wonderful prophetic truths. First, that the coming of Christ is imminent. It's imminent. It could happen at any moment. James is saying, 1900 and some years ago, he is near. They expected him at any moment. And by the way, don't be confused. I hear people all the time saying, you know what's happening over in the Middle East? Boy, you know, he, he's got to come now because that happened. No, nothing had to happen for him to fulfill his word of coming after he ascended and the church established. The apostles all talked about it as if it were right around the corner. Paul expected to be alive when it happened. We 
we who are alive and remain will be snatched away, raptura in the Latin, will be raptured away. Peter writes, the end of all things is near. First Peter 4, 7. Paul writes to the Romans, the night is almost over and the day is near. He doesn't say the day is almost over and the night's here. The night's almost over. The day is almost here. The day, a reference to the parousia. The writer of Hebrews tells his readers not to skip church. I mean, literally, don't skip the assembly. Don't forsake it. Encourage one another. And all the more so as you see the day approaching. John writes, children, it is the last hour. The coming of Christ is imminent. Secondly, James encourages the believers that they can anticipate being rescued. Whatever they are suffering. Throughout the New Testament, the believers are never told to prepare to experience the wrath of God, but to prepare to see Christ. Next thing on our prophetic radar, the joyful incentive of the believer to endure mistreatment, to stay the course of suffering through this present age makes no sense if the next thing coming is the wrath of God. The believer is not given one verse on how to survive the tribulation explosion of wrath as promised uh, further and, and more completely in the book of Revelation. So James is effectively saying, stay the course, not because at any moment you're going to have or see seven really horrific years of God's wrath. He's saying, persevere, hang on, be patient, don't lash back, don't strike back. Why? You're about to be delivered. Come today. What's next for the believers of this age? Paul put it this way in Romans 8:18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, not the sufferings of the tribulation, by the way, but the sufferings of this present time, they are not worthy to be compared with what's coming next, the glory that is to be revealed In other words, whatever the church worldwide is facing, and for us that may not be all that much of a blessing, but if I were preaching to the underground church in China, what joy this would bring to them because they're in the midst of deep suffering. If we were to deliver this gospel to the believers in North Africa, oh, what joy would fill their hearts. The suffering church worldwide, we happen to be in a little slice of the world where we Meet today in freedom. But for us, the truth remains. What are we doing? How are we living? What are we expecting? Are we anticipating? He's coming. G. Campbell Morgan, that wonderful British expositor, a friend of Spurgeon, though he lived later, in fact, he died in 1945, began his ministry in the late 1800s, pastored when he was 17, and began an amazing Ministry, G. Campbell Morgan said this, The thought of the coming of Christ is the light on my path which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head on my pillow without thinking that maybe before the morning dawns, that morning will dawn. I never begin to work in the morning without thinking that perhaps he might interrupt my work and begin his own. So how do we live in the meantime? With anticipation of Christ's coming. How do we live? 
Well, James answers that question by taking us to a farm by way of illustration. Notice the middle part of verse 7. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil. He's patient about it until it gets the early and late rain. Many believe that James actually spent some time farming along with his brother Jude, who also wrote a letter in your New Testament. He obviously understood the process well. He refers here to the early and later rains. What I learned, the early rains were anxiously awaited by especially these farmers, because among other things, the rain would soften the hard-baked soil for plowing and, and for seeding, which they did by hand. The latter rains were necessary to mature the crops. The longer those rains continued, the, the greater the yield. In between the rainy seasons, they weeded, they hoed, they fertilized, they patiently waited. They didn't get out in the, on the land and yell at the crops. They waited. They worked. Now, I'll tell you, I don't know a thing about farming. I am incredibly grateful for those who do. But I don't know a thing about farming. I, years ago, I planted some tomato plants. Disaster. Fed the bugs in the neighborhood. That's about all it did, I believe. But that was it for me. My father grew up on a farm, soda, until he entered the Air Force where he was saved, came to faith in Christ, and felt led of the Lord to go into ministry. And so he went to Bible college after that. At different times, he would tell us his four sons, stories from life on the farm. And all those stories made me even happier that he was saved and went into the ministry. Otherwise, I would have been raised on a farm. You know how difficult it is to feed a dog and water a dog? Well, you should, I mean, goodness, he would tell us about getting up at 5 in the morning, milking a dozen cows by hand in Minnesota uh, when the temperature was 5 below zero. And then after that, walking more than a mile to school in the snow, he told me, you know, how do you, how do you complain about lunch? I, I remember complaining about lunch mom was making us. You know, we didn't have the right stuff in it or whatever. He told us the story of how when he was a boy, he carried in his pocket a raw potato with a little pat of butter wrapped in cellophane. When he got to that one-room schoolhouse, he and the other farm boys would put that potato up on that black wood-burning stove and he'd cook all morning. Then at lunchtime, he'd get that potato, he and the other boys, and that little pat of butter, and that was his lunch. How do you complain about little Debbie snacks uh, after that, okay? You don't. The older I get, the more I love to hear those stories. I can't imagine how difficult life would be on a farm. We depend on them, don't we? The most difficult thing from what I've learned and read and heard about farming is not the physical labor, but the mental labor. Mental wear and tear. You never know what the weather is going to That's James' exact point here. He references the patience of the farmer, and then what does he talk about? The weather, <laughs> the rain. You do everything you can do and everything you can control. You work hard. And then you depend on something you cannot control. You see, the patience of a farmer doesn't come from doing nothing. 
It comes from understanding his limitations. We might talk about, you know, what are you doing? Well, I'm learning to be patient. What are you doing? Well, I'm doing nothing. I'm learning to be patient. No, not the farmer. He's doing everything he possibly can. And in that, developing patience. Even if it rains, after doing everything he can possibly do, he has no visible indication at all for a few months that anything's happening. He trusts that these laws developed by our Creator are at work. No visible manifestation. Another observation that came to my mind as I looked at this text is that even when a farmer has a bumper crop, he has to do the same thing all over again. There's not a farmer alive who, who, who plants one crop and expects to have food for the rest of his life. He has to do it all over again. Stay the course. Do the right thing. What a wonderful metaphor. Fertilize your spiritual discipline. Plant in your heart the seeds of God's truth. Okay, Lord, I did it. Do it again. Do all that again. Farmers, same things over and over and over again. I know a businessman in our church who told me time ago that even though his work here in this community is what we would call white collar, working with computers and figures and code, he told me that he spends some of his vacation time each summer volunteering to work on a large farm. He wasn't raised on a farm. Somehow this got started, and he said, Stephen, whenever I slip into the seat of that tractor, my perspectives on life get readjusted back to where they ought to be. I thought that was interesting. Farming is a perfect metaphor for that daily, persistent endurance of combining everything you can do For life, while at the same time trusting Him to do for you what only He can do. What a great balance. In fact, James is going to even further emphasize the responsibility of the believer to endure. Look at verse 8. You too, be patient. And then he adds this phrase, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Strengthen your hearts. Make firm your hearts. A little more woodenly to the American ear, accurate. Prop up your hearts. See, James is is urging the believer to decisive action, to resolution, to strengthen and make firm their inner life. Now, it's interesting because in a number of New Testament passages, we won't take the time to go through them, this is is observed and, and taught as the work of God. That God strengthens our hearts. First Peter 5.10, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. But James presents this in the light of our own due diligence. He tells the, the challenged believer, the suffering believer, to literally prop up their hearts with the promise of Christ's return. Do what you can do. Like the way one author put it, God doesn't steer parked cars. Put it in drive and accelerate. Do what you can do. Plant, fertilize, weed, harvest, and then depend upon God to do what only God can do. And unless he does it, 
none of it matters. There's a combination of our work plus his, which is amazing truth. Nowhere is the believer given the suggestion. You know, that what we do now is we, we, we put on a white robe and climb some hill and wait for Jesus to come back. Or hide away from the pressures and the temptations of the world. Cloister ourselves away. Gauge. Act. Face the challenge. Endurance means there's a battle you're facing. Endurance means there's a challenge you're meeting. I love the way one author wrote it, and I'm going to read you the paragraph because I don't want to miss a word. But the author wrote, Did you ever notice that when the Lord told Peter and the other discouraged fishermen to cast their nets again? You remember that encounter? It was right at the same place where they had been working all night and had caught nothing. Think about it. If we could only go off to some new place every time we get discouraged, trying again would be easier. If we could be somebody else, or go somewhere else, or do something else, it might not be so hard to have fresh resolve. But it is, I love this, it is the same old net in the same old pond. The old temptations are to be battled. The old faults are to be faced. The old trials and discouragements before which we failed yesterday are to be faced yet again today. And Jesus Christ speaks the word, let down your nets again. Try it again. While you're at it, don't take out your frustration on the other fishermen in the boat with you. That's James' next thought. Look at verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Don't have that unprofitable thought, spirit, which cannot be rewarded at the parousia of Christ, the coming of Christ. It's true, isn't it? Impatience with God leads us to be impatient with God's people or people in general. Don't grumble against one another, brethren. The tense of the verb implies that James is saying, you're doing it. So stop it. The idea. Times are so tough for these believers. Maybe for you today. Culture is cruel. Feelings are, are frayed. And our tendency is to take out on, you know, our, our frustration on anybody near us. So you come home from work. You bark at the dog. You, you, you kick at the cat. You, you snap at the kids or whatever. They're not the problem. They just got in the line of fire. Here we are struggling. We're, we're trying to raise a harvest of godly character and godly conduct. We don't see any manifestation of it. Rains seem late or too early. Todd is hard. It's possible to get upset and frustrated with others around us when it's really between us and the Lord. In fact, the problem's a little deeper than this. The word James uses for complain can actually be translated groan. Grown. It refers to feelings that may be internal and never fully expressed. It has the idea of carrying a grudge against someone that is kept within. And again, the verb indicates that this is taking place, and James is saying, stop, stop doing that. And, and notice again, the incentive for staying the course is the coming of Christ. 
So here the incentive for not harboring bitter judgments against other believers. Notice at the end of verse 9. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. He's not only your redeemer, your Lord, your rescuer. He's your judge. Not in the way you'll judge the unbeliever, the great white friend. This is the judge of the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. Every action, thought, reaction will be viewed as either profitable or unprofitable. That which is profitable will be rewarded. That which is unprofitable will just be burned away. At that accounting, James says, don't, don't forget that accounting. We will no doubt be ashamed of things we kept inside, things we did outside of us. Praise God for the blood of Christ, which has already paid the penalty for sin. Sin will not be viewed in us as it will be viewed in those who do not believe the great white throne. But we will wish, I am sure, oh, how we will wish that more of what we thought and more of what we did and more of what we said and more of how we lived will be worthy of being rewarded as Christ, our judge, dispenses the reward because the thrill will not be so much in receiving the reward, the thrill will be in that we now have something to give back. Those things which are profitable are rewarded, and James says he's coming. 2 Corinthians 5.10 elaborates on that. So all of life should be lived with the perspective of the parousia of Christ. Jesus Christ is, is coming. That does a couple of things. It encourages us when we're beaten and tired and mistreated. We want to throw in the towel. It's a reminder that whatever it is, it is temporary. It's within that first hundred years. Maybe if you live past that, 110, 115. It also reminds us to stay the course, to live right, because he will one day in grace reward us for those difficult years and times. I found it interesting in my study to discover that this word coming, parousia, the coming of Christ, includes the idea of, of presence. Sort of like the kingdom. No, it's going to literally come, and yet he can reign in us now. Jesus Christ is literally coming one day. His coming is so certain it's spoken of as if and it is indeed true that he is right now in inhabiting our lives present now. During your toughest assignment, James is saying to them and us, remember that. He's present. During your worst suffering, he's not way off. He's near. Hand. During moments of mistreatment or maligning, he's aware. He's available to join you in the strengthening of your heart. As you do your part, he does his. Dean Peterson paraphrased this classic text of Christ our high priest in Hebrews 4.16 to read it this way. We don't have a high priest who's out of touch. I love the way he puts that. He's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give us. Take his mercy. Take it. Accept. His help. Accept it. One author illustrated this truth by writing about a personal encounter with a fellow student, and with this I'll wrap things up here very shortly. A student
student was blind. His name was John. This author talked about spending a couple of hours each week reading to him. They were fellow students at the university. To help him study, he would read to him. One day, this author writes, I asked him how he lost his sight. He told me of an accident that happened when he was a teenager and how at that point he had simply given up on life. He said, when the accident happened and I knew I would never see again, I felt a life had ended as far as I was concerned. I was bitter, angry with God for letting it happen. I took my anger out on everyone around me. I felt that since I had no future, I was not going to lift a finger on my own behalf, let others wait on me, let others serve me. I shut my bedroom door and refused to come out, except for meals. The author interjects here, this young man I knew was an eager learner, uh, an earnest student. So I had to ask him what changed his spirit, his attitude. He told me this story. Well, one day in exasperation, my father came into my room and began to give me a heated lecture. He said he was tired of my feeling me feeling sorry for myself. He said that winter was coming and it was still my job to put up the storm windows. He yelled at me, you get those windows up by supper time tonight. He slammed the door on his way out. John said that made me so angry that I resolved to do it. Muttering and complaining to myself, I groped my way out to the garage. I found those windows. I found the stepladder. I found all the necessary tools, and I went to work, all the while thinking, they'll be sorry when I fall off this ladder and break my neck. Little by little, he said, groping my way around that house, job done. Stopped as he spoke to me, and his sightless eyes misted up, and he said, I would find out later that at no time during the day had my father ever been more than four or five feet away. You might think that James is, un, is as uncaring in his counsel to these believers as that father was to his blind son. Treated, exiled, they can't go home, they're suffering. Prop up your heart! Do whatever you can do. Jesus Christ is coming. That's both encouraging and challenging. Encouraging because you're going to leave it. Challenging because he's going to reward you for what you did for his glory. Both this father and James here, although demanding, want nothing more than for us to develop a bumper crop of spiritual fruit. So let me, let me summarize as we close James' opening words in just a couple of sentences. He opens this paragraph by directly or indirectly, explicitly or implicitly making these statements. First, develop endurance. While you wait for the Lord who is coming to rapture you, develop endurance while you wait for the Lord to rapture you, and it could be today. Secondly, refuse bitterness while you wait for the Lord who is coming to reward you, and it could be today. Live more like a farmer, but with that final harvest in view.
Well, friend, none of us knows the day, so let's be vigilant and be sure of it. Jesus really could come back today. Observations from a farm is just the first part of Stephen's seven-part endurance series, and we invite you to download the free written transcripts of the series and to study right along with us day by day. We invite you to call us if you have any questions about how to do that. And here's the number, one 866 482-4253. Give us a call if you need to. Until next time, I'm Denny Milgate for the whole Wisdom for the Heart team saying thanks for tuning in. We'll be looking for you on the next Wisdom for the Heart. to Morning Inspirations on Jam Radio 2.1.
This is Morning Inspirations with Minister Kenneth Jenkins. W Mind Block Radio. Turn it up.
Today's Creation Moments Minute, we look at how fireflies produce their light. To make a flash, fireflies must make and mix a chemical called luciferin with an oxygen and enzyme called luciferase. This mixture is combined with a catalyst to create the flashes of light. Firefly flashes are used for finding a mate. Fireflies are able to read the light signals of other fireflies. These signals may contain several messages. 
some flashes can tell a firefly whether the sender is one of his species. Light flashes are also used to identify whether the sender is a male or a female. And if it's a female, the flash can also identify whether she has already mated with another firefly. This is another example of the unlimited creativity and extravagance of our creator God. The same beauty of the firefly that creates wonder in the child should also fill us with wonder at the limitless imagination of God. For Creation Moments Minute, I'm Darren Martin. Listen's Morning Inspirations on Sunday mornings at 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here.
Ultra and Beyond Belief. Good morning to you and yours. Thanks for listening to the Other Morning Gospel Program. We're on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. Bringing the very best in gospel inspiration and music. Like this one from Kiki Shear. Yeah, huh?
you died for me to pay the price for all the wrong things that I've committed against God and against man. I believe that on the third day, by the power of God, you were raised from the dead as living proof that my trust in you tonight is not in vain. I believe that as Christ was raised from the dead, so tonight, Almighty God, you are raising me from the dead, from the death of sin. You are giving me a new life, the life of Jesus Christ. Oh God, on my testimony and the belief in my heart and according to your word, at this moment, I believe I am saved. I am saved. I am saved. Oh, let me ask you, friends, in closing tonight, have you done this? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you obeyed the gospel? Have you come to that obedience of faith? Have you come to that place of true repentance and true faith? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you turned around? Have you forsaken your sin? Are you trusting alone tonight in Jesus Christ for your salvation? For there is no other way, there is no other message. For there is no other way, there is no other message. Oh, come to him, come to the Saviour tonight. Come to him just as you are. Come to him in your sin. Come to him in all your needs. And cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself upon his mercy and upon his infinite grace. Cast yourself wholly to him. And you too will enter into that joy of sins forgiven, peace with God, and eternal, abundant life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How can I say thanks for the things you have done for me things so undeserved that you gave your very life for me the voices of a million with his 
my life. Let it be pleasing, love to thee. And should I gain any praise, let it go. With his blood, he has saved me. With his power, he has raised me. To
right, Jack, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. This is Jam Radio Network. 